the book of Revelation, and we have now found our way into chapter 15. As Frank uh, has already mentioned, we've got about 50 of our young people that are in San Diego this morning. They're, they'll be there all week, and uh, so be praying for them that God would use this not only to reach people, but to change their life as they find out more about what it is to, to share their faith with other folks. There's a guy that was coming across I-40 over through Arizona and through that part of the world, and he came into West Texas, you know, out there. If you've ever been out there, they ain't nothing, man. And he just, truck driver, you know, big old burly guy. And he's cruising through there. The sun starts coming up on the horizon, and he's a little bit hungry. So he walks into this, this little diner, and minding his own business, he walks in there and sits down and orders a bowl of oatmeal. So he just slamming down his oatmeal, and all of a sudden, this big old crowd of Hell's Angels comes in from L.A. And they're walking up to the man, and they start pushing on him, and, and he's just chilled. He's all mellow. They can't get over it. They take the bowl of oatmeal, put it right on top of his head. He doesn't do anything. They pull out his chair, and he falls down on the ground. One of the guys goes in the back, and he gets the eggs, and they start just splatting them on top of his head. And all of a sudden, he just gets up, and he, he walks out. And the leader of the Hells Angels looks at the, the guy at the diner and says, not much of a fighter, is he? He says, no, and you know what? He's not much of a driver either. He just backed over 12 motorcycles out there. <laughs> And, and you, you know why we laugh at that? Because we want justice to be served, don't we? I mean, as, I, as I'm telling that, I mean, you're just waiting for it, aren't you? You're just waiting for him to, to do something. And that's, that's our infatuation with superheroes, isn't it? I mean, you, you have figured out the plot on every single one of those shows, right? What, what's going to happen is they take this this guy that's got the patience of Job, you know? Mild-mannered guy. Clark Kent, right? And the dude is just all chilled. He's all mellow. He ain't gonna do nothing about nothing, you know? And while all these injustices are going on and all these atrocities are taking place on all these human beings, you're just like, come on. Come on. I mean, you're just waiting for the minute that Clark Kent goes into that, that phone booth, aren't you? And he comes out, and he's, he's Superman. And, and then, then you got the other, the other guy. I don't know if you ever put this little piece of the thing together, but this guy is a dignified, very, very poised guy that lives somewhat disconnected from all the atrocities that are going on in the city, he lives over here in a, in a mansion. And while all this stuff is going on, and all these things are going on, you're just, you're just waiting for this dignified guy to go down into the, the bat cave, and he becomes Batman. And all of a sudden, man, with the Batmobile, he comes flying out of that thing. And you know what? There's something inside of us that wants justice to be served. In Hollywood, it's found out. We're suckers for it. Because here come Rambo. And buddy, he walks into town and here's that little redneck village man. And you remember when they're putting that hose on him and he's and he's having all these flashbacks. And uh, You want it, don't you? I mean, come on, buddy. Go for it. And when he pulls out that Uzi, I mean, we're all just like, yes. Does anybody know, other than Frank and Sandy, okay, because I know they know who this is, because we used to do this in college every Friday night. Anybody know who David Banner is? Is he the man or what? Oh, the Incredible Hulk is the man. I mean, here's David Banner. He's as mild-mannered as anybody ever hit the planet. He, he, 
He doesn't want to do anything. He's patient. He's merciful. He's long-suffering. And you're just waiting. I, I, I saw one this past week, in fact. And, and when, it, when it starts off, David Banner is he's, he's somewhat slow, you know, simple. And he works in this high-tech place, and it shows him, and he's, he's scrubbing the little corners of the floor, you know. And your heart starts going out to the dude. And if people come by and they're making fun of him, you know, the guy, you know, gives him some carrot cake and that his wife made. It ain't no carrot cake. You know, they, they just, and they, you know what they're doing, don't you? They're tugging on you. They're making you want it. And so here he is, it's, it's Friday, and so he leaves the place after everybody's been making fun of him. He's got his two-week check, and he goes to the bank. And this is what happens. Oh, yeah. Here it comes.
That's what I'm talking about. What, what y'all do in church today? Oh, we watch the Incredible Hulk. But it's true, isn't it? I mean, is anybody here as they're taking... I, I, you know what? When I'm watching this and the Incredible Hulk goes over to the guy that did that, I'm like, get the money. Get the money. Just make me feel better. Get that money. Because we want justice to be served. And, and that's what Revelation 15 is all about. It's the time when on this planet, y'all, justice is finally going to be served. And check it out. The meek and lowly Lamb of God becomes the fierce and ferocious lion of the tribe of Judah. And that's the time that John saw in Revelation 15. That's where we'll begin our outline this morning with Roman numeral 1, the unveiling of the great and marvelous sign in heaven. The unveiling of the great and marvelous sign in heaven. And look at verse 1. John says, And I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous. And I want you to look at verse 1 again. I want you to notice that John says, I saw another sign in heaven. This isn't the first one that, that he's seen. We, we mentioned this last week. There's one back, and you can see it in chapter 12 in verse 1. It was a, a woman. And we saw in the context that the woman, of course, is the nation of Israel. And then also in chapter 12 and verse 3, he sees immediately off the heels of that other wonder or sign, same word that's translated wonder in, in this passage is the one sign over in chapter 15. And, and John saw another sign or another wonder in verse 3, and this time it was the dragon. And, of course, in the context, the dragon is clearly defined down in verse 9 as that old serpent called the devil and Satan. And now in chapter 15, in verse 1, John sees a, a third and a final sign or a wonder in heaven and, and notice the way that he describes this one y'all this one is not just great this one is great and marvelous in other words this one was the most significant of all of the, the three there's only three in the whole book and he says this one man this one was great this one was marvelous. In, in other words, it, it wasn't just incredible. It, he's saying it was unbelievable. John says, it. I saw it and it made me marvel. It made me just shake my head in amazement. It was awesome. It, it blew me away. And, and, and check this out. John wrote down for us what he saw. I mean, this sign that he's talking about that just blew his doors off. We got it right here. Now, we're going to know if we really get it this morning. If when it's all said and done, we look at it and we say, whoa, that's awesome. That's, that's great and marvelous. We don't really talk like that anymore. But that's the idea. We're going to know if we get it this morning. If we step back from everything that we begin to see about this incredible sign and go, oh my goodness, that's incredible. And as John recorded for us what he saw, he allows us, first of all, to look at the scene. That's letter A on your outline. He allows us to look at the scene. Okay, so as he sees this, this great and marvelous sign, first of all, he says that he saw the seven angels. Seven angels. Now, now check it out, y'all. Not six. Not eight. Not two, not twelve, not twenty, but seven. Now, if you've been here through our study of the first 14 chapters, you know already that the number seven is not only a very key number throughout the Bible, but the number seven is also a very key number in this final book of the Bible. In fact, when we come to Revelation 15 and verse 1, we see the, the word seven there in front of the word angels. This is, check this out, the 37th time in 15 chapters that the word seven has appeared it's going to appear 59 times in all and like we've talked about so often number seven in the bible is the number of perfection or or completion 
that's why in this final book of the Bible where God completes his perfect revelation to us, that's why the number seven just keeps coming and coming and coming. So we already know this. Whatever these seven angels are going to, whatever part they're going to have in, in this, this great and marvelous sign that he's talking about, by the time it's all over, we know this. Whatever part they have, it's going to be done perfectly, and it's going to be done completely. But not only are there seven angels, there's also seven plagues. Seven plagues. And when John sees the seven angels in verse 1, look at it, he sees them having or holding the seven last plagues. You say, well, well what are those? Well, John defines them for you in the very next breath. In them, in what? In those seven last plagues, in them is filled up the wrath of God. And oh my goodness, y'all, you, you got to understand this. Okay, now, now please listen. If you miss this balance, it's going to mess you up by the time you get to the end. You got to see this. But for the last 6,000 years of human history, God has dealt with man in mercy. He's dealt with him in David Banner style. He's been long-suffering, tender-hearted, and compassionate. In fact, in Second Peter chapter 3, in verse 3, what it says is that in the last days, scoffers are going to come along, and they have. And what these scoffers are going to say is, you know, you suckers have been talking about the fact that God was going to come back and he was going to judge this planet for years and years and years, and he ain't done it yet, and something else, he ain't going to do it. Peter comes through that whole passage, and in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9, he says, listen, the only reason that he has not come back and already judged this planet is the very simple fact that he is long-suffering and not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance and listen. For the last 6,000 years of human history, that's the heart that God has manifested toward mankind. For 6,000 years, his heart has been that of which is displayed in Ezekiel chapter 33 and verse 11. We don't have time to turn to these. Listen, jot down some stuff. Check out the heart of God over the last 6,000 years. God says, as I live saith the Lord God. I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Listen to him. He says, turn ye, turn ye from your evil ways, for why will you die? In Ezekiel chapter 18 and verse 23, God asks, listen, have I any pleasure at all that the wicked should die? saith the Lord God, and not that he should return from his ways and live. In Isaiah chapter 55 and verse 7, listen as God pleads with the wicked. Listen to him. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return unto the Lord and he will have mercy upon him and to our God and he will... Listen, not only pardon, he will, anybody know? Abundantly pardon. But you've got to understand something. As God has been making that plea, all along, he's been warning that there would come a day when he would no longer offer his mercy. He, he's been warning about a day when that long suffering would be over. He said in Acts chapter 17 and verse 31, He hath appointed a day in the which He will judge the world in righteousness. And oh yeah, buddy, He has been merciful and He has been long suffering, but He's got a day written in His appointment book when as Revel uh, Romans chapter 1 and verse 18 says, His wrath will be revealed from heaven 
against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And buddy, if God's got it in his appointment book, you can bank on it. It's going to happen. Because God has never missed an appointment that he's had in the last 6,000 years. And I promise you, I promise you, I promise you, God is not going to miss this appointment with the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. But for the last 6,000 years, he's been merciful. I mean, he's, he's just been unbelievably patient. He's been incredibly long-suffering. But look at verse 1 of chapter 15 again. You know what this verse is letting us know? It's letting us know that for the last 6,000 years, while nobody on the earth could see it, while, while no one except for people who were stupid enough to believe what this book said, though nobody knew what was going on except for those stupid folks, John says there's something incredible that's been going on for the last 6,000 years up in heaven. It's something that he says it was great that was going on up in heaven. Something he says was marvelous. It's been going on up there. You, you know what's been going on, y'all? Listen. God's wrath has been filling up. Look at verse 1 again. John says... Uh, of these seven last plagues, that in them is filled up the wrath of God. Now check this out. In Ezekiel chapter 28 and Isaiah 14, it, it talks about a time in the Garden of Eden long before Adam ever set foot in that place when there was anointed cherub that was closest to the throne of God who had a throne in Eden his name, Lucifer, meant light bearer, and what his job was was to reflect the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Every time you see the Lord Jesus Christ manifested without the veil of human flesh in the Bible, he is always manifested as blazing, blinding light. And here is this light bearer, Lucifer, and from that incredible position, this incredible creation of God declared war against the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want you to listen and understand something. For the first time in God's eternal existence, His wrath began to be filled up. God came down into that, that garden sometime later he reached into the dust of the earth to put a new king in Eden and allow him to reflect the glory of God on the earth. And as soon as he was put there, Satan hated it. And he slithered his way back into that garden and he got man to sin. And once again, God's wrath began to fill up. And listen, all down through history, you can see it. Anybody who lived for the Lord Jesus Christ, anybody who lived for the Lord's kingdom and, and sought through their lives to give Him glory, you know what Satan would do? He would empower the wicked to persecute or kill him. It started all the way back in the Garden of Eden with Cain and Abel. Just, just, just listen, jot down whatever you can. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 4 says... That by faith, Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, by which he obtained witness that he was righteous. And 1 John chapter 3 and verse 12 says, Cain, listen now, who was of that wicked one, slew his brother. And wherefore slew he him? You know what God's saying? You know why he did that? Because his own works were evil and his brother's righteous and again it establishes a pattern that you see all through history and when you see it when you see this pattern begin to unfold most of the time you can't see the ramifications of it on the earth but listen even though you can't see it don't miss for a second but up in heaven something great's going on
something marvelous is going on. Because while you can't see it on the earth, God's wrath is filling up in heaven. Psalm 37, verse 32 says, listen, the wicked watcheth the righteous and seeketh to slay him. Psalm 11, 2 says, the wicked bend their bow. They make ready their arrow upon the string that they may privately shoot at the upright in heart. And, and listen, we could go to place after place after place throughout the whole Old Testament where they were doing that. And listen, every time that you see it, though you can't see it on the earth, more and more of God's wrath is accumulating in heaven. Psalm 94 and verse 5 says, They break in pieces thy people, O Lord, and afflict thine heritage. Proverbs 29.10 says, The bloodthirsty hate the upright. And again, all through the Old Testament. Anybody, anytime somebody reminded Satan of the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ, what Satan would do is he would empower the wicked to afflict them. And I want you to turn to this one. Turn, turn back to the book of Hebrews for just a second. I, I want you to see what Hebrews chapter 11 talks about these people that we're talking about that were afflicted by the wicked, the people that Satan was empowering. Look at, look, look at what he says was going on. He, Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 35. 35. Look, look in the middle of the verse. Others were tortured, verse 36. And others had trial of cruel mockings and scourgings, yea, moreover, of bonds and imprisonments. They were stoned. They were cut in two with saws. They were tempted. They were slain with the sword. They were forced to wander about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented. And oh, I just love how right in the middle of the, the whole explanation that God's given of what's going on here, he just puts in this, this little parenthesis and he says, of whom the world was not stinking, well, that's not there, worthy. And for all of you folks who are computer folks, would you just look at the word worthy? God puts a little smiley face there. And he goes on, and he says, They wandered in deserts and in mountains and in dens and in caves of the earth. And you know what's wild, y'all? You know what just blows me away? is that in almost every single one of the cases, the wicked that were inflicting all of this stuff upon the righteous, they walked away unharmed. They walked away untouched. They walked away uncaring. They walked away totally unaffected by what they had just done many times, laughing their dirty, stinking heads off, and they walk away to enjoy a pleasant, peaceful and a good bit of the time prosperous life and we look at that and go but rest assured up in heaven God hasn't missed a single blow that they've ever taken God hasn't missed not even an idle word that was spoken to those people. And then, after thousands and thousands of people who are represented here in this passage in Hebrews 11, 35 to 38, after all of that that Satan had poured out on them, he finally got his chance. I mean, here it comes. Jesus becomes flesh and dwelt among us. He's born into that little manger in Bethlehem. And though it's not recorded in Matthew or Luke's account of the birth of Christ, it is recorded for us in Revelation chapter 12 and verse 4. What it says is that Satan the dragon was right there waiting to devour him as soon as he came out of that womb. But he couldn't. 
Matthew chapter 2 and verse 13 says that Satan tried to kill him through Herod's decree when he was a toddler. But he couldn't. And all through his earthly ministry, you see it. Satan is trying to kill him through the scribes and the Pharisees. But he couldn't. It, what it says is he, he kept passing from their midst. And finally the day came. And Satan himself, this is the way the Bible says it, Satan himself actually moved into the body of Judas Iscariot. Jesus is praying in the garden. And Judas leads that crowd, Satan incarnate, brings him there and kisses him on the cheek. And he's arrested. And he's taken from that garden. And he's brought into that room. And they blindfold him. And one by one. And they're laughing their heads off as they're beating the devil out of him. And as they beat him, they're mocking him. Who hit you? <laughs> oh, yeah, if you're so great, if you're God, who's this? Bam! And they're just laughing their heads off. They take him out, and they just begin to scourge him. If you go back and check it out, Josephus, the first century Jewish historian, wrote that many times after the scourging, Sometimes the victim's internal organs would lay at their feet. And here is our Savior, God in a human body, having his very flesh ripped off of his body. And as soon as they got his back to where it looks like hamburger, they come and they put the purple robe on him. Because, you know, a king wears a robe. And they said, oh, but you know what? Not only does a king have a robe, but they have a crown. And somebody's been over there wrapping that, that thing, that crown of thorns. And they come, hey, I got the crown that he deserves. Damn! And they ram it onto his head and the blood just comes down on his face, mixing into the sweat and going into his eyes and all down his face. And somebody, yeah, you know what else, man? A king has a scepter. And somebody goes out and they get a stinking stick off of the street. A king represents, or the scepter represents a king's authority, his power, and his majesty. And they walk back into that bloody-faced God and say, here, this is the scepter you deserve. Oh, great king. And they put a reed into his hands. And then they take him out. And they begin to pound the nails into his hands and his feet. And they lift him up on that cross and and he hangs there and he died and Satan laughed but let me tell you something God didn't and I want you to know something with every blow that was delivered upon his son with every word that was spoken to him in mockery with every pounding of those nails into his hands and his feet and every piercing of those thorns into his brow with every struggling breath the father watched him draw from that cross I'm sure folks like we could never in a million trillion years like we could never imagine in heaven God's wrath was filling up 
it was filling up. And listen, as it was filling up in heaven, you know what was going on in the earth? The sun became black at high noon. And in the darkness, the earth began to quake. And you've got to understand something, though. That wasn't the outpouring of God's wrath. That's just what was going on as the wrath was filling up in heaven. But it was a foreshadowing of what's going to happen on the earth when that wrath that was filling up in heaven on that day, when that stuff gets poured out, we're going to see in Revelation chapter 16 and verses 8 and 9 that when it is, you know, what's going to happen to that wrath that was going on in the heart of God on that day? You know what's going to happen? It says that that wrath is going to be poured out upon the sun. And the sun is going to scorch men on this planet with fire and burning heat. And it says in Revelation chapter 16 and verse 18, that as that wrath that was filling up on that day, as Jesus was being crucified on that cross, as that wrath is poured down through the earth's atmosphere, you know what's going to happen once again as it's coming through? The earth's surface is going to start convulsing and quaking in such a fashion, listen, and I quote, such as was not since men were upon the earth so mighty an earthquake and so great. That's what's coming, y'all. But on that day, when Jesus was being crucified, the wrath was simply filling up in heaven. Satan wasn't through. Jesus died. He was buried. He rose again. He ascended to the Father. And after all of that, Satan still, still had all of that hatred on the inside of him. He wasn't through beating him. He wasn't through whipping him. He wasn't through mocking him. He wasn't through crucifying him. But he couldn't get him anymore. So you know what he did? He said, if I can't get him, I'll get it. Anybody who's like me. And you see, y'all, that's why the Bible says, count them all that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Anybody on this planet that looks anything like the Lord Jesus Christ and His righteousness, anybody that genuinely bears His name, you understand, we're Christians, Christ-like ones. Anybody that takes that name, he's going to get after them. See, Paul understood that. And that's what he was talking about in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 24 when he said, I rejoice that I'm able to suffer. Because, listen, you know what he said? He said, because I understand something. I understand that what's happening is I'm filling up, listen to it, I'm filling up in my body the afflictions that are meant for Christ. In my flesh. You know what Paul was saying? He took the blows that were meant for me. And I just kind of get off on taking the blows that are meant for him. I rejoice, Paul said. And buddy, he, he, he took them. And for the last 2,000 years, Again, anytime somebody lived the way that this book said that a Christian ought to live, Satan, Satan has been after him, man. We've talked about it so many times. We've talked about it so many times, you're probably sick of hearing it. But don't ever forget that for the last 2,000 
years since Satan beat our Lord and mocked our Lord and crucified our Lord. For the last 2,000 years, there have been over 50 million martyrs for the Lord Jesus Christ. People who were thrown to wild animals. They were dipped in tar and burned like candles. They were impaled on stakes. They were thrown on hot grills. Their mouths were filled with gunpowder and lit so that their heads would literally blow off of their body. Hot pokers would be put into their mouth and their ears and their eyes and their nose and any place they could find an opening on their body. They were thrown off the top of high buildings. They were literally pulled apart by stretching devices that they had created for that very purpose. They were thrown into ovens. They were crucified. And we could go on and on and on with them. And with every single one of those 50 million martyrs, you've got to understand that 50 million times, 50 million, Is it marvelous to you? Oh, it is when it's an incredible hog. It is when it's Bruce Wayne. It is when it's Clark Kent. How about when it's Holy God whose wrath is filling up? And, and you know what? It wasn't just the martyrs, y'all. There are a lot of people who suffered day after day after day after day for years and years and decades in every single day that they were persecuted. God's wrath was filling up. And now listen. In the very near future, what could be as, as close as three and a half years from today? It, it could be another 13 and a half years. I, I don't know. I, I don't think it's going to be, but it, it certainly could. But now listen, after all this time, God's wrath is going to finally be filled up. Go to Revelation 15, 1. Isn't that what it says? In them, in those seven plagues, is filled up the wrath of God. For 6,000 years, it's been filling up. Listen, I don't know where it is right now. It's about full. And once it is, buddy, watch out. Watch out. And you know, something interesting about the word that's translated is filled up here. You know what? It just happens to be the word that Jesus spoke in the, the final few seconds before he died on the cross in John 19.30 when he said, you know what it is? It is finished. And listen, there's coming a day when God's wrath is going to be filled up. And you know what? Once again, Jesus is going to say it. It is finished. And it's interesting. If you look over in chapter 16 one time, and what happens when this seventh plague is actually poured out, look at verse 17. John says, And the seventh angel poured out his vial into the air. That holds the plagues that holds the wrath of God. There came a great voice out of the temple of heaven from the throne. So you know whose voice that is, right? Whose voice is it, y'all? It's the Lord Jesus Christ, and watch what he says. It is done. 
Now you see, that's why Revelation 15.1 calls them the seven last plagues. Because when this is over, it's done. And that's why John says this sign was not only great, but it was marvelous. Because the fierceness and fullness of God's wrath is executed through these seven plagues as the final fulfillment of prophecy. But now listen, once that's done, once those plagues have been poured out, that's when the fierceness and fullness of God's wrath is going to be executed, this time not through the plagues, but through His person. And you see, that'll be the time that 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9 was talking about, when He comes back in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. And that'll be the time as Revelation chapter 1 and verse 7 says, when every eye shall see Him, when He comes not down to pour out His wrath through the plagues. Again, that's going to be done by this time. This is going to be the time when He comes to finish the judgment against the ungodliness and unrighteousness of the people of the, the earth through His person. And Revelation 1, 7 says that not only will every eye see Him but, listen, all, all kindreds of the earth shall wail. You know what? We can't comprehend it. But it's coming. So John allows us to look at the scene. And as he does, not only does he show us the seven angels having the, the seven last plagues, he also shows us an incredible throng of victors. Now, you get in the scene there? He, he sees the seven angels. They are holding the seven last plagues. And what those plagues are is the fullness of the wrath of God. And he says, but uh, there, there was something else in the scene. There was this throng of of victors. And it's interesting, with these seven angels, with the seven last plagues, he gives us a sevenfold description of these victors. In verses 2 and 3, look at what John says. Look at what John says in verse 2. He says, And I saw, as it were, a sea of glass mingled with fire, and them that had gotten the victory over the beast and over his image and over his mark and over the number of his name stand on the sea of glass having the harps of God. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Now, first of all, make sure that you understand that this throng of people that John sees here they aren't church-age saints who were raptured before the tribulation period began. What these, this throng of people is, they are tribulation saints who, as verse 2 says, had gotten the victory over the beast or the, the Antichrist. Okay, That's why I'm calling them the victors. They got the victory over the Antichrist. But listen, oh buddy, I mean, you've you got to understand something now. I mean, if you could have been with these people just a little while before John saw them here in Revelation 15 before the throne. Now listen, if you could have saw them just a little bit before when they were still on the earth, and unless you've got incredibly spiritual eyes, you know what? You would have looked at that group of people just before that time when they were still on the earth. You would have looked at them and had a real hard time calling them victors. Because when we studied them back in chapter 13, the beast and his prophet are in power on the earth. And the way the thing shakes down is that if you won't bow to the image of the Antichrist and worship him, and you won't take his mark, they'll kill you. In fact, go over to, to Revelation chapter 20 and, and verse 4. And I'll show you 
how these victors are actually going to die. John says in verse 4, And I saw thrones, and they, they sat upon them, and judgment was given them. Okay, now watch this now. John's about to see these victors. He says, And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands. Are you checking this out, folks? Listen, these victors that John's talking about back in chapter 15, go back. These victors that he's talking about here that have gotten a victory over the Antichrist, you know who they are? They're the ones who had their stinking heads lopped off by the Antichrist. You say, whoa, 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 whoa. I mean, if the Antichrist lopped their head off, then when is it that these people got the victory over him? You know when it was? You know? They got the victory over him just as soon as he lopped their heads off. Because as Paul said in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 21, to die is, is gain. And Jesus said, what, what shall it profit a man if he gained the whole world and lose his own soul? These people didn't lose their own soul. You know what? They were victors. And you know what? It's just the opposite of how we think from a human standpoint. But now listen. You understand? Had they held on to their life. Had they remained alive by worshiping the Antichrist and taking his mark, do you understand? They would have been losers. But because they refused, they lost their head and they became the victors. Because the very split second their head was disconnected from their body, their soul and their spirit, the real them, was ushered into the presence of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And you know what they're going to say at that moment, y'all? Oh, death, where is thy sting? Oh, grave, where is thy victory? Where? The victories. The victors. And, and you know what? It's real easy for all of us to sit here this morning and... I mean, it's just as clear as a bell that these people that we're talking about here, that these people, in light of their situation, in light of the persecution, and in spite of the persecution, that they're going to endure from the hands of the Antichrist to the point to where they will actually have their head disconnected from their body. In spite of that situation, we look at those people and we have no problem whatsoever looking at them and saying, they are the victors. But I'll tell you, it might not have been as easy if we would have been standing in that head chopping off line watching those heads fall to the ground and saying, ain't it great to be one of the victors? Right? And you know what? 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty-seven. You know what it says about us? Listen. We're the victors. He says, but thanks be to God who giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We're victors. And yet, you know what? We don't go through anything like these tribulation saints are going to go through. I mean, not a one of us. I don't care who you are. I don't care what you've been through. You won't ever in your lifetime go through what this crowd is going to go through. And yet, you know what? Everywhere you go, man, everywhere you go, everywhere you go, Christians walking around with you. These are the victors now. They're discouraged. They're defeated. They're dejected. They're depressed. You know why? 
because all the situations and the circumstances that are going on in their life. And you know what's happened to them? They forgot who they are. They forgot that they're victors. And you know why they forgot? It's really very simple. Because everywhere they look in their life, they can't, listen, they can't see any victory. But listen, the reason they can't see any victory is they're looking in the wrong place. And they're looking with the wrong eyes. They're looking through human eyes and not through the eyes of faith. Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 18, while we look not at the things which are seen. Listen. For the things, what we're looking at is the things that are not seen. For the things which are seen with human eyes are temporal. But those things which are not seen, the things that are seen only through the eyes of faith, he says, they're eternal. Christians say, you know, this is, this is an impossible situation. Jesus says in Matthew 19, 26, with me, all things are possible. Christians say, I'm just, I'm just too tired. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 11 and verse 28, I'll give you rest. Christians walk around, you know, nobody really loves me. Jesus says in John 3.16, I love you. I just can't go on. Jesus says in 2 Corinthians 12.9, My grace is sufficient. Christians say, I just don't know what to do. Jesus says in Proverbs 3.6, I'll direct your paths. Christian said, I just can't do it. He says in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 13, you can do all things through me, but I'm just not able. In 2 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 8, he says, I'm able. I know you ain't. I am. Christians say, it just ain't worth it. Jesus says in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 7, it is worth it. Christians walk around, I just can't forgive myself. Jesus says in 1 John 1, 9, I forgive you. But we just can't make ends meet. Jesus says in Philippians 4, 19, I'll supply all your needs. But I'm just so afraid. Jesus says in 2 Timothy 1, 7, I haven't given you the spirit of fear. That ain't coming from me. Christians say, but I'm just, I'm all worried and filled with anxiety. And Jesus says in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 6, don't be anxious about anything, but pray about everything. Christians walk around, I just don't, I don't have enough faith to live the Christian life. And Jesus says in Galatians 2.20, then why don't you live it the way that Paul did? Through my faith. Christians walking around talking about, well, I, you know what, I just can't seem to learn the Bible. Jesus says in Proverbs 1.23, I will make my words known unto you. But I just feel so alone. Jesus says in Hebrews 13, 5, I'll never leave you or forsake you. Do you see what I'm talking about? That's our life. I can't do it. I'm alone. I Nobody loves me. I, 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 I. And all of this showing is we're looking in the wrong place. We're looking through human eyes and here, oh, we've got great eyes of faith because we're sitting in our cush pews on Sunday morning reading about these tribulation saints going, 
they're the victors. And somehow disconnected from the fact that every single one of us in this room today that names the name of Christ, we're victors. And it's time that we stopped looking through human eyes and started looking through the eyes of faith at things that are eternal. The lone survivor of a shipwreck exhaustedly makes his way to the shore. He comes to this uninhabited island. He had nothing. He doesn't know what he's going to do. He finds some driftwood and he starts building a little hut to, to get himself out of the elements. And He's out one day scavenging for some food and he's finding anything that he can possibly find. To, to, and all, every day, as he's just hanging on for dear life, he's crying out to God, Oh God, oh God, God would you rescue me? Oh God, would you help me? Oh God, would you please deliver me out of this? Every day he's praying. And he goes off one day after scavenging for some food, and he walks back, and lo and behold, his hut, the only thing he had, is absolutely burnt down to the ground. He casts himself onto the sand, and he starts beating it, and he, he's, he's frustrated. He's angry. Oh, God, I cried out to you and I prayed, oh, God, that you would deliver me and now this. And he cries himself into sleep and several hours later, he hears, and he looks out and here is a ship and they begin to make their way to where he is and he says, how did you know that I was here? He said, we saw the smoke signals that you sent. <laughs> you know what, y'all? We don't really understand this Christian life thing that we're living, do we? I mean, we've never really, we've never really gotten it that the greatest victories come as a result of the greatest trials and the highest mountains come through going through the lowest valleys and normally the way that it works out is when things drop out in our life and we look at it and it is absolutely the worst possible situation what God's getting ready to do is turn that into the best possible victory. That's what happened to the tribulation saints. The worst thing! Their head was lopped off and they were immediately into the greatest victory imaginable. And that's where God has some of you folks right now and you're walking around like we were talking about as victors now. And we're all depressed. We're all discouraged. We're defeated. We're dejected. And it's time we start looking at what's real. You see, what's real isn't what you see with human eyes. That's temporal, God says. What's real is what's eternal, and that's what you can't see with human eyes. You've got to see it through the eyes of God, through the pages of this book, through the eyes of faith. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, we pray this morning that you would give us eyes to see. Thank you for allowing us to see the things that we were able to see through this, this incredible passage this morning. And Lord, I pray that you would, you would minister this, this word wherever it needs to be ministered in the lives of, of your people today, your saints. Lord, remind us that we're victors. Help us to not look at our situation and be filled with despair. Help us to look at our situation and go to your book and see what you had to say and help us, Father, to believe what is written in your holy word. 
And oh Lord, for those that are here today that have never received Your Son, oh Lord, I pray that in the midst of everything that we've seen today, as we've talked about Your wrath filling up, I pray that You would help them to see, as we talked about at the beginning, that You take no pleasure at all in the death of the wicked. But with a heart of mercy and tenderness and compassion, you plead for men to turn from their way to you. And I pray that people that are in this room today that have never made that turn, I pray that this would be the day that they would make that turn from their way to your way. The way, the truth, the life. That is your son. And Lord, I pray in this service today that people would be saved. I pray in this service today that Christians' lives would be changed for all eternity's sake. In Jesus' name, amen.